0: Lord, we thank you that you provide for us. And we are joyful, Lord, to share out of what you have given to us back to you as a reminder that it is you on which we rely. We don't rely on dollars and cents, but rather on the sense and sensibility that comes by your word through your spirit and the direct provision that comes from the flow of that spirit in our lives and the openness of your heart and your hand to us. I ask, Lord, that you would bless these faithful givers and any that might be inclined to make their donation today. I thank you, Lord, that you would enable us as a church family to care for those less fortunate and more needy around us. I thank you, Lord, that your provision provides for the flow of ministry in this place. And part of that ministry, in fact, the very heart of that ministry, is focused on your Word and on your Son and on your Spirit, the Spirit who inspired the Word the spirit who filled the living word, who is your son, our savior, Jesus. And so as we turn to your word today in our reading in the book of Romans, I ask, Lord, that you would turn our hearts to you, that you would open our ears, that you would empty us of anything, Lord, that competes with you for our attention or our affection, that you would empty us, Lord, of everything so that we would have a hunger for you that you would come and fill us from the inside out with the fullness of who you are, of what you want, the fullness and the richness of your will. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Remember in the cartoons when somebody faced a tough decision and on their shoulders there would pop up a little version of them, the angel, and a little version of them, the devil, or something to that effect. And the angel almost always seemed to be the one that was saying, in the face of something desirable, don't touch that. Don't take that. Don't do that. But the little devil, of course, would always say, go ahead, you know you want to, You know you want it. Desire. It's powerful, isn't it? I want to talk for a moment about human desire. And I want to do so by calling attention to the words of a man who was quite celebrated, perhaps one of the greatest intellectual celebrities, if you will, or academics of the 20th century, and yet not a man with whom I frankly very frequently agree. Now, he was far more intelligent than I will probably ever be, no doubt more erudite and educated. He certainly knew a lot more about math than I will ever be able to learn, I'm sure. In fact, mathematics and logic were among his areas of particular expertise. His name was Bertrand Russell. He was a British man, a polymath, if you will, it's a term that refers to someone whose level of skill and and expertise embraces a variety of disciplines. In fact, not only a great deal of knowledge in a lot of disciplines, but often a polymath is someone who actually innovates in those fields. And uh, it must be reckoned that Bertrand Russell was one like that. Not only was he expert in areas of philosophy and logic and mathematics, and, and, and also highly knowledgeable in other scientific endeavors, but he also was a man of letters, In fact, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for literature in 1950, in the very middle of the 20th century, when he was almost but not quite 80 years old. He was born, by the way, exactly a century before I was, not to the day, but to the year. And so, if you want to know my age, you can look up Bertrand Russell and you'll know. It's no great uh, secret. But in any case, Bertrand Russell was honored for his writings, which actually uh, encompassed a great many of different areas. And in his response when he received the Nobel Prize and gave his acceptance speech, he talked in part about human desire. And here is what he said. All human activity is prompted by desire. Will you say that word, desire? Desire. It almost feels like A naughty word, maybe. Well, maybe that's partly my fault, the way I set it up with the little devil talking about desire. But I want to, in this moment, allow you to think about desire in a more neutral way. That is, desire as being defined by what you want, the goal or aim, so that desire, just like purpose, can be positive or negative, It can be righteous or unrighteous, moral or immoral, informed or ignorant. It's neutral until it's informed or it's filled in, or it's aimed, let us say, like an arrow at a target, at the center, at the desire. And all human activity, Bertrand Russell says, is effectively prompted by this notion that we want something. By the way, when I was training as an actor, this is pretty much the same idea of that abused term that you've probably heard, motivation. What's my motivation, right? Every actor is trying to figure that out, but really the reality is it's because every person is motivated by something. They want something. They're trying to get something. We do that. In fact, right now, I'm motivated by something. I have something I'm trying to convey to you, and I'm trying to do it persuasively. I want to help you to see things, and I want to encourage you to agree with things. And that's my desire in this moment. So every activity can come to be defined by this, whether people are aware of it or not. I suppose you could talk about it ballistically, if you will, which is a fancy way of saying it is like an arrow. Every arrow is aimed at something. Now you may be aiming haphazardly, or you may lack the skill to get it where you're aiming, but whether you're trying to get it to go somewhere or not, the reality is once that arrow is released, it's going somewhere. It has a trajectory. So Russell continues on this notion on his own trajectory and says there's a wholly fallacious theory, that is an entirely inaccurate theory advanced by some earnest moralists to the effect that it's possible to resist desire in the interests of duty and moral principle Now, though he was a celebrated academic of the 20th century, you can sense in this a great deal also of his origins in the 19th century and the Victorian era into which he was born in a very established family. In fact, I believe it was his grandfather that twice served as the prime minister of the UK. And so Bertrand Russell was a man in a a nation that was highly steeped in traditions. Traditions that we would consider of the Western Christian uh, uh, structure. And so what he's saying here is, in, in this kind of a society, there are those who would suggest that you can overcome desire by applying yourself to duty. In other words, you might desire something wrong, but you can overcome it by simply imposing the will, or, the, or the, uh, uh, your own will, self-will, to focus on some kind of moral principle, and he rejects this as fallacious, not because no man ever acts from a sense of duty, but because, look at this now, duty has no hold on him unless he desires to be dutiful. Now I don't agree ultimately with Russell's conclusions about things, especially the most important thing, because as you may have guessed, he was in fact an atheist. He called himself formally an agnostic, but recognized that in practical terms he was atheist, which is just a way to reckon that you can be highly educated and incredibly smart and still be wrong. And I say that with grace towards him and an acknowledgement, he was smarter than me, but I wouldn't say that in that equation, that ultimate aspect of reality Is there a God? And what does he want? And what is he like? You can know a great many things and still get that wrong. But Bertrand Russell knows something about human nature here that's worth our recognizing, which is people are only dutiful to something if they want to be. And this really is a big part of our problem, isn't it? Because as we're going to see in Romans chapter 7, because we are returning to Romans today, yay, and we're going to continue advancing over the weeks to come in our study of this extraordinary letter that Paul wrote to the early Christians in Rome in the first century, we're coming to this place right before the midway point of the book, of the letter, where Paul talks about a war within. In fact, my concluding point today is entitled that, the war within, that there are these things which we recognize as being desirable because they are virtuous. We might call them our duty as disciples of Christ, But we are still struggling inside with the fact that we have different desires. And can't we at least be honest with one another about that? We have different desires. I mean, I do. If you don't, can we make an appointment? I need you to help me to know how you arrived at the place where you don't have desires different than the will of God. Because I still have desires within me that are different from the will of God. And there are times when those desires can be very powerful. And they're not always things that you and I would recognize as wrong. In fact, the ones that we can readily recognize as wrong are often the ones that we can most readily resist. It's the desires that we don't even realize that we have or the desires that we don't recognize are wrong that often end up being the demons that enslave us the most. But there's something else about this comment here that I wanted to introduce into our thinking right at the beginning of today's teaching, which is that it isn't wrong to think of duty as something that you would desire, or to put it in more overtly Christian, religious terms, it isn't wrong to recognize that maybe you don't want to be everything that God wants you to be, but you want to want that. Did I lose you? In other words, If we really look at God's will for us, sometimes we say, I believe that's God's will, but I don't want it. And it's okay to admit that. I mean, you may as well admit that if that's what you're feeling. If you're just going to deny that, you're not going to deal with it, so you're not going to overcome it, but you're just living in denial. And you may fool yourself, but guess who you're not fooling? God. And not only that, but it's not as though God's trying to trick you or catch you. God wants to help you. He wants to help you desire what he wants for you because what he wants for you is good. And so, in fact, when you say, I don't want that yet, but I do want you, God, and so I'm asking you to put the desire in me, do you know what he does? He puts the desire in you. But the thing is, in that filling of you, he overflows. He may push other desires out of you. He may empty out in order to fill in and so that can be scary but if you recognize that it's the father's will which means that there's an inheritance a reward a treasure promised to you you'll be more willing and ready to receive it and when you do you will start to desire god from the inside out and that's wonderful that's what it is to be a christian to have the hunger for God from within that is strong enough to overcome those alternate desires and is also pure and powerful enough to liberate you from them. So human desire can be good or it can be bad. And when it's bad, it's real bad because it ends up binding you, enslaving you. I want to talk about another philosopher for a moment, earlier than Bertrand Russell, And this, in fact, is the Enlightenment philosopher who is known by a variety of different names, um, Baruch de Spinoza, or maybe you've heard Benedictus or Benedict de Spinoza, which is just the same name in different languages like Paul and Saul. But in any case, he's most commonly referred to today as Spinoza. And he was uh, a celebrated thinker of his time, although iconoclastic in many ways, just as Russell was, different conclusions, but um, also a mind that was clearly capable of thinking about things in a deeper way than most of us uh, usually come to. And so he wrote a magnum opus, his great work called Ethics, and there's a section in it that he titled Of Human Bondage. In fact, it's such a powerful title that years later in the 20th century, the English author W. Somerset Maugham used it for a book. You may have seen one of the multiple movies that were made from this book. In fact, the first one is the one that introduced Betty Davis to the world as a star, I think. In any case, Spinoza was talking about how certain purposes or aims, which he refers to as affects, or desires, actually become so engrossing, so demanding in the lives of people that people are effectively enslaved to these desires. Human passions and desires that ultimately tend to orbit around these dual sensibilities or dual desires that Spinoza recognizes. Pleasure seeking and pain avoidance. Well, sounds good to me, right? (laughs) Can you relate to that? Do you like pleasure? I do. Do you like pain? I don't. Do you wish to avoid pain? Yes. Do you generally gravitate towards pleasure? Yes. I mean, who wouldn't, right? But the problem is, what if something is painful but is actually good? What if something feels good but is actually bad. And of course, I don't need to demonstrate to you. In fact, you don't have to be a disciple of Jesus to know that that is the case. There are things that seem enjoyable in the moment, but ultimately end up being bad. In fact, there's a war within about this, too. Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, if we're going to talk philosophers, I guess comedians can be included in the mix, We come a little more current than this, had a routine where he talked about night guy and morning guy. He talked about how he liked to stay up at night. Now, this is something that probably people, especially before they married and have kids and have a little bit more of a regularized schedule, can relate to this. People in their 20s or teens like to stay up late. Maybe you're a married dude or a married lady, and you're still like that, too. But in any case, this is somebody who likes to be out having a good time or staying up late watching the movie, and even though they have to get up for school in the morning or work, they're not thinking about it. They're just enjoying it. Nobody's going to force me to do anything. But then in the morning, the alarm goes off, and you're thinking, why did I stay up watch that. Why did I go out to that party? Why didn't I come home? But that's morning guy's problem, right? So it's one person, but two wills at work. And part of the problem is that night guy is only thinking about what's going on in the night. But there's a morning coming. There's a sunrise. There's an alarm. There's a bell ringing. And as John Donne said, ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. So there's a war within. We desire pleasure, we want to avoid pain, but we recognize that this may not be the full definition of duty. And yet, how do we free ourselves from this inclination that Spinoza sees as an enslavement? The way that we are freed is not by ourselves, but by our God. That's why we need a Savior, because we are enslaved to sin. And the ultimate result of sin is death. So we are slaves to sin and death and hell until the divine will comes to free us. So let's talk about divine will. If we say that we desire God's purpose, and that's what it is to say that you are a follower of Jesus... I desire what Jesus desires. I want to do what Jesus would do. And Jesus desires to reveal God to us because he is God, but also to show us how to live in the will of God because he's a human. He is both divine and human. And I know that boggles the old coconut here, but we have to embrace a reality that goes beyond us if we are going to be embraced by a God who is beyond us. And yet he is also with us. And he has a will that he would make known to us. So we must aim for it. It must be the focus of our desire. The the bullseye that you and I are aiming for is the will of God. But how can we know what the will of God is? Especially when so many people say so many different things about it. And after all, many people say there's many different gods. Or no God at all. Or many different ways to the one God or the many God or the good thing. After all, someone like Bertrand Russell may not have believed in God, but he still believed in goodness. Now that's boggling to me. I think that's more astonishing than saying that Jesus is fully God and fully divine, to say that you could somehow conceive of goodness as truly being good without God. I don't know what that means as far as I'm concerned. I believe it is technically incoherent. There is nothing good without God. Jesus, when he was called a good teacher by someone, said, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Jesus wasn't saying he wasn't good. What he was saying is, when you say good, you mean God. Because only God is good. Only God desires that which is good all the time. So there is a God, and he does have a will. But how can we know it? He will show it. He will speak it. He will give it. God is the lawgiver. Yes, Moses delivered the law, but he didn't write it. What Moses wrote, he wrote because God told him. And God was the one who by his very finger in the stone wrote the 10 words, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. And on that mighty mountain where God's presence was manifest in fire and light and smoke and sound, they heard his voice speak. And what he spoke was his word and his word was his will. So it gives us the target. You see, if you have an arrow and you've got to aim it at something, where are you going to aim it without the target? So the law is the target. The word of God is the bullseye. And in fact, the living word, Jesus, is the full manifestation of that target. But just because you aim at something doesn't mean that you hit the mark. In fact, on a bullseye, think about those concentric circles, target, Uh, The store, if you can't think of the icon, at least the store will bring the icon to mind, right? In the center circle is what you're aiming for. But all those other circles around it provide a measurement of how far off the mark you missed. And in Greek, that measurement, that missing measure, is hamartia. It's actually literally the word sin. Sin is missing the mark. So now you may know that you're aiming for the mark and you're missing. In fact, the law will make sin visible to you. But the problem with sin becoming visible is just because you know where it is and you know that you've missed it doesn't actually enable you to hit it. In fact, the law makes it more evident. Now there's a measurement for how much you've missed. So sin exists whether you know it or not, but the penalty comes with the law, and yet the law is necessary to know where you're aiming. So what are we going to do? God, who gave us the target, who put the X that marks the spot, climbed onto that cross himself to hit the spot, to make the mark, to reach the goal. So that now, it isn't necessary for you and I to always hit the target, because the target has already been hit by Christ. And he is drawing us into the center of God's will. But if we say, okay, I don't need to hit the target... So it's okay if I miss, how am I going to be drawn to the center? I have to take a sip. I got so excited talking about that that my throat closed down around it. It isn't possible to desire the will of God and focus somewhere else but what we find in practice is, no matter how much we say that we desire God, our focus shifts. Jesus is the solution for both problems, for all problems, because Jesus not only shows us where the mark is and gives us the desire to hit it, but he covers those times when we miss the mark. Yet we shouldn't use that as an excuse to go aiming for something else, Rather, we should capitalize on that benefit by aiming all the more at him. But recognize that it isn't the perfection of our aim that will win the game. But rather, it's the perfection of God's will. Christ came to fulfill the law. And going back to Spinoza, remember how we are enslaved to these alternate desires? Christ came to set us free. To free us... To fulfill the law, not according to every aspect of its particular letter per se, I have a comment about that in a moment, but rather according to the Spirit who gave the law and is alive in the law and is the fullness and the fulfillment of the law. Now, I want to go back to something that we talked about in prior sermons in this series. And if you haven't heard all of the Romans series, you don't need to have in order to appreciate what's being shared today, but you may want to go back and look at that. You can find it on our YouTube page or on our website at mypcf.org, and track along with this teaching. By the way, have you read through the whole book of Romans yet? Do that. And if you have read through the whole book of Romans, maybe do it again this week. Maybe read it aloud if you haven't read it aloud yet. Let this letter live in you, because it is a living letter, not a dead letter. Now, when Paul talks about the law, not only in Romans, but throughout his writings, we recognize previously, and I want to remind you, that he's not always referring to exactly the same thing, even when he's using exactly the same terms. And that can be a little challenging. I think, though, that is by design. It's interesting how this idea of God having a target for us is also a moving target. You know, a moving target is harder to hit So you say, well, why can't God be still? But remember, God is the I am. He's always moving. Now, that is not to say that he's always changing, because God never changes. Hebrews 13.8 puts it this way. You know the phrase... Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But you and I, we live on what Madeleine L'Engle called a swiftly tilting planet. We are in a moving place. So we're the ones that are often moving around. And that means that the target is moving relative to us, or we are moving relative to the target. And in fact, what God wants is our trust. We tend to want to try and zero in on exactly the right doctrine, exactly the right dogma, exactly the right practice, and there is some merit to that. You can't just throw that all out because there's a baby in that bathwater somewhere, but it's also important to recognize that no amount of precision and perfection in our articulation and our ideas is ever able to keep us completely in the place that God wants us, which is reliant on him even when we don't see. Even when we don't understand, even when we don't want what he wants. And Jesus himself has shown us that. That's extraordinary, brothers and sisters. My friends, it's extraordinary that Jesus Christ actually shows us that a human being can have a human desire that is alternate to the will of God and it's not sin, so long as that human being, in recognizing their alternate will, says, Not my will but yours be done. In fact, that's the heart of the law. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of a living trust. And that's what Jesus wants to lead us into. The Father's will, a living trust. Yes, I'm making a little bit of a legal joke here, and I'm no attorney, and I'm no expert on trusts and wills, but you can hear that in both of these terms, there is something that is a bit of a metaphor that Paul will appeal to in a variety of ways, more so in chapter eight, which we're gonna be looking at in the next few weeks, but also in other writings of Paul, he talks about how death is necessary to release the inheritance of a will. Now these days, you can have a living trust, and I don't know everything about those, except my understanding is that it is in part the ability to take what is essentially an inheritance and begin to administrate it and share from it even while the person is alive. And so I like that metaphor. Because Jesus Christ is alive, and yet he is releasing the inheritance of the Father to us. The Father is alive. Oddly enough, in this equation, we are the ones that die, but Christ first. Christ died in order to live again, in order that you and I could live in him and be children of God and inheritors of the promise. And it's a living trust. It's something that is active and alive every day and calls us to trust the Lord every day. Now, as we come to chapter 7, I want to remind you what it's built on, the first six chapters that we've studied together, and how they lead to this point. First of all, Paul begins his whole letter by talking about something that actually is relevant to this idea of human desire and human bondage. He calls himself a slave. And I think what we see in this is that Paul recognizes that once he was enslaved to a religious idea of how to hit the mark of how to meet the goal of God. And yet, even though Paul was an expert in the letter of the law, he was completely missing the spirit until Jesus Christ encountered Paul. The resurrected Christ appeared to him when Paul was on the road to Damascus going ready to bring Christians into prison and even to death. And Christ himself instead said, why are you going in the wrong direction? Why are you kicking against the goads? In other words, why are you like a beast of burden that's trying to throw off its rider? I'm trying to show you the way to go. And so Paul, from that point onward, recognized Jesus is Lord, Jesus is my master. I go where he tells me to go. I do what he tells me to do, and he gives me the power to do it so that it is God who is able to show me and to move in me to fulfill what he calls me to be. And so Paul describes this as being enslaved. But the idea is not one in which you have lost all freedom, but rather in which you have been made truly free to be truly bound, married, if you will, to the goodness of God. And so he carries that good news, that God is good and desires this connection and will empower us in that life to all that he encounters. And that's the message that he's sending to the believers in Rome. So the good news starts by recognizing the bad news. The bad news is everyone has missed the mark. And the law makes it visible. Now, some people didn't know that they were missing the mark before the law came, but they were still missing the mark. But perhaps they were not subject to the same kind of penalties. But once the law came, the law brought with it both blessing and cursing. Blessing if you align with the will and purpose of God, but curses that come when you are alternate to God's will or when you are moving perpendicularly, shall we say, to the purposes of God. Now, there are two ways that you can deal with this, and Paul says both ways are ultimately wrong. One is to say, well, then I don't care. It doesn't matter. There is no God, or I'll choose a different God who I can satisfy a different way, and that's the way of the world. And so people can go that way and feel like they're hitting the mark, but the reality is they're still missing the goal. The other response is to try and embrace everything of God, of his word and of his law, and fulfill it perfectly in our own effort. But the problem with this is we continually miss the mark. And it's even worse because we know we're missing the mark. And so what people tend to do because of that is to make excuses or to make themselves uh, um, you know, give themselves indulgences by which missing the mark no longer matters. Or they become so fixated on how others are missing the mark that they tend to completely ignore where they are missing it. And this is how the religious leaders of Jesus' time were, and Paul was like one of those. So Paul say, says both the religious Jews and the Christians that have come out of them and the worldly have all sinned and have all missed the mark. But in fact, what the law draws us to is faith, a living trust. Faith in the Father to enable us to reach His will, to put His will within us, to put within us the desire for His will and the spirit by which we would have the ability to do it. That's always been the law's focus, purpose, and fulfillment. And as an example of this, in chapter 4, Paul refers to Abraham the father of the Jewish faith, and therefore the father of the religionists, quote-unquote. But what Paul is saying is, what Abraham really did in instituting these things in his family was to demonstrate faith. And all the signs and ceremonies and symbols surrounding it are only meaningful so much in as they are filled by faith. Abraham trusted God. He trusted that God would do what he said, even when it seemed impossible, even when it, frankly, was impossible. He believed that, and God used his faith to make him righteous. Now then, God's grace allows you and I, everyone, whether they are uh, biologically a descendant of Abraham or not, to be able to be a descendant of Abraham by faith. Now, we are all biologically united, Human beings are all of one race. We are all of one group. We are all one kind. We are all descended, in biblical terms, from Adam. That first couple who shared a name. Those two that were really one. And both together sinned in the garden. They saw something that they desired. And there was a devil there. That serpent snake in the paradise that said, Go ahead, you know you want it. And rather than trusting God... They reached out for their own goal, and in doing so, they died. They didn't physically die instantaneously, but in their physical being, the law of death began to be at work, and the disease of death carried down the generations. So now then, their spiritual life died, and their physical life entered into the disease of death. You and I were born into that physicality. We were born into a world that is marked by sin, and we were born with sinful desires within us. But there's a new Adam that came, and in him, in Christ, there is forgiveness for that first failure and fullness of the real spirit. God's grace overcomes our sin and draws us into him, and in him we find freedom from sin, and we are bound. To the righteousness of God. We become slaves of God's righteousness in the sense that we are given purpose and function, power and presence from God. So, being bound to Christ, we're released from sin, we're revived by faith, and we are received by grace. But into what? Into the kingdom, yes, into the household of God, into the Father's will. You see, this is all the riches of who God is and what he wants, all of his blessings. In chapter 7, Paul talks about this, this, this union that you and I are offered and that is actually made real in Christ. A match made in heaven, if you will. You were made for Christ and Christ came for you. And this church, this body of which we are part, not just this local congregation, PCF, though it's dear to our hearts the way our own local family ever is, but the whole global universal body of Christ is made for you and you for it when Christ invites you into a marriage made in heaven where you die to the old spouse sin. You see, we were enslaved to a wicked husband, if you will, Sin ruled over us like an abusive spouse. And the only way that we could be freed from that was for that spouse to die. So Christ went to death so that sin itself could die, so that death itself would die. Now then, you and I in our bodies have not yet seen that death of death, but a process has begun. Do you remember how in Adam... The Lord said, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. They died spiritually immediately, but their physical death took time, and it carried down the generations. Now, when Jesus died and rose again, we are promised a resurrection in the very same day. And our spirits, in fact, are revived immediately and eternally in Christ when we receive him. But our bodies are in a process. But you're betrothed. You're engaged to God. And so, it is fruitfulness for which God has saved you. He desires that out of this marriage, there will be children. In other words, that the kingdom would be fruitful and multiply. I don't mean biological children, but that you and I would go out as witnesses to the world so that the household of God could grow, so that more people would be brought in to the kingdom of God, to the fullness of His will, and the blessings of His inheritance. Now, from this perspective, we might look at the law and say, well, then, what purpose was the law? Was the law bad? No, the law wasn't bad. The law is good. The law just wasn't able to make us good. But it does teach us lessons, like a tutor, like a teacher. It has trained us so that we can see who God is, know what God wants, and trust in his will. But we can't fulfill it. Only Christ can do that. But if Christ is in you, then Christ will in you fulfill the will of the Father. His Spirit will make you and I able to do that which we are not able to do on our own. But it's not all roses. Or if it is, there are thorns on those roses. And here's where the rubber meets the road. Inside of us, there's still a tug of war. On our shoulders, there still seems to sit the demon and the angel. And even though I might will to do what God wants, there is another will at work in my body. And it's not just the physical body, but it's the idea of my carnal nature. My humanity in this fallen state still has an appetite and desire for pleasure, still has a fear and a reversion of pain, and still has doubt about God. So who will save me from this this wrestling match within this body of death that still wants to enchain me to death, Jesus will save me. Because in him, I have the ability to be drawn towards the center, towards the mark, towards the cross. But even when I fail, I have his grace to cover my failure because there's no condemnation in Christ. This is where Romans 8 is going to take us. And after all, if God is doing all of this for us, it is because he is for us. If he didn't withhold his own son from us, but gave up his son to us so that we could become his sons and daughters, then then what else won't he do for us? If God is for us, who or what can be against us? And if God has a hold of us in his love, then what can take us out of his love? Nothing, not even death, not even life can take us out of the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That just summarized Romans 8. But in Romans 8, we also see the reality of this war. It isn't just inside of us. It's in the world around us. All creation groans. You know, when you come to Christ, you become like a pregnant lady in a way. I know I'm mixing metaphors, but that's because no metaphor is sufficient to get all of it in. In some ways we are our children that have been adopted into God's family. In other ways we are like a bride engaged to our husband that is to come. And in another way we're like a mother who's expecting the birth of a baby. Now, that life began at the moment of conception, but it isn't born until the moment of birth. And so all of our lives as we follow the Lord, our lives lived out in a kind of labor. But if you have the right recognition that this life that is within is ultimately going to break out, and that it is a good thing, then you will willingly go through the labor. It doesn't mean it won't be painful, but it means that you are focused on ultimate joy. Now, I only have a few minutes remaining, and I have more uh, teaching than can be fit into those minutes. So I'm going to have to compress some of what I'm sharing. But I encourage you to take the time to read through all of the verses that we are going to be looking over in these remaining minutes as, uh, as we study the structure of chapter seven and let the, the the fullness and richness of this word permeate into everything of your life take time to study it this week you know if you're just going off of the teaching that you get sunday to sunday it's not enough to really transform you i believe that god speaks together with us in these moments But it's really only going to be useful in keeping you on the trajectory of God if you are regularly in the word yourself every day, if you are regularly praying, if you're regularly applying. So I encourage you to do that. Now, look at the first portion. When we die with Christ, we die to the law's penalties. That's a good thing. So even though the word death sounds unpleasant and it seems like God is asking everything of us, he is, by the way. It's just like what we studied in Genesis 22 when God came to Abraham and said, I want your son, the son that I gave you, the promise that I gave you, I want it back. It's like when we say that we give to the Lord and yet it's God who has given to us. Now, why does God ask for anything back from us? Because he needs it? No, but because by giving to God, we experience freedom. It's by trusting in God that we come to know the freedom and joy of his will. So we have died to the penalties of the law, but we come alive to its promises. Christ died to free us from the bonds of sin and to give us other bonds. In other words, we weren't meant to just be unfettered. You might think that that sounds good. I just wanna run free. But you know what it's like? It's like trying to win a race in zero gravity. You know, gravity might sound like a bad thing because it pulls you down and it weighs you down. When you get on the scale, maybe you don't like gravity, but don't blame gravity. It's what you ate last night, right, that is making you weigh what you see this morning. Well, that was night guy. Morning guy is the one that gets on the scale. Night guy is the one that fills the scale up, right? In any case, we're all beholden to gravity, and we might think, oh, I just wish I could be free of gravity. But you know what? Gravity facilitates a lot of other things, like atmosphere, And also position and movement. And in fact, if you were just free floating in space, it wouldn't be a benefit. So when we were freed from one thing, it wasn't just to be floating into the ether, but rather to be bound to another. We were freed from one in order to be married to the other. So Paul's going to describe this in the sense of a marriage. After all, a marriage is formed by the law, especially to the people who were of the Jewish tradition. And their laws were That marriage was of the Mosaic law. Now, a married woman is bound by law to her husband, Paul says. She can't just go off and marry someone else. She would be breaking the law, right? And she would be subject to penalties. She'd be an adulteress. It would be immoral and illegal. But if her husband dies, she's no longer bound by that law. Now, it's not the law that has died, Right, And so this is where the letter of the law in the Old Testament is, in some ways, the letter of an arrangement that has passed away, not because the word of God passes away, but because the people of God pass away. And so in this sense, something has died that has freed us. And we are freed from being married to sin. We are divorced from death and brought into life. The new life is the new marriage of the new husband, which is the will and the work of God, or Christ. Christ comes to marry us to himself, so that we can enjoy this wonderful relationship that will be fruitful and loving, intimate and passionate, rich and rewarding. Now, when we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, you know, it's classic that if you come to a little child and tell them don't touch that, the first thing that they're going to want to do is touch it, right? And the reason they want to is because you said don't do it. So Paul is talking about that. He's saying the moment that we know that something is off limits, we want to test the limits. And so when the law came, simply to show us what the goal was, it also produced within us these little demon desires that say, well, let's try and, let's try and do it our own way. Let's try and reach the, the mark another way. But... We are now released from those temptations because we're released from those penalties because we are now connected directly to God in Christ. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old written code. So there Paul is talking about the law in that very specific and limited sense. But the law also refers to the way of living. In fact, the Hebrew word for law, Torah, means a way of instruction, a way of being and of teaching others to do and to follow. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant in the sense of he is the one who allows us to have a new experience of God's will, of God's way. Instead of trying to enter into that through a law that we could not fulfill, he brings us into himself. And in him, we experience death to the old way and a new way of living. So a death has occurred that redeems And and actually enables the release of blessing. So here is a metaphor that is used by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9. They are referring to how the will or an inheritance only becomes available once there's been a death. So when Jesus is saying to you, die to yourself and come to the cross, he's saying, die the death that will release the will of God to you. Die the death that will release the inheritance. Now you say, but I'm dying. But there's something better in the living that will come after you're dying. A will only takes effect at death. Jesus died so that our death could bring about life. Jesus died and suffered the penalty so that we could live and receive the blessing. Paul will talk about this in the same kind of metaphor in the next chapter. When he says... Uh, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice that he says, by the Spirit. You cannot put to death the deeds of the body just by the will of the body. You can't use the flesh to conquer the flesh. You have to allow the Spirit to overcome the flesh. Too many people who are trying to follow Jesus are trying to hit the mark that he already hit, failing it, and either growing discouraged and saying, I tried and that didn't work, or failing it and fraudulently saying, I didn't fail, I've got it now. And they know the right language to use to say that it's God. But inside, what they really feel is the worry and the weariness of someone who thinks, I don't know if I'm good enough, or what well, maybe even worse, they feel the pride and arrogance of someone who thinks I'm more than good enough. But that's all in the flesh. And it's all born out of the desire for something pleasurable and the fear of something painful, and it's not informed by the Spirit. Where then, how then, do we relinquish ourselves to the Spirit? Trust. We give ourselves over to God. And the Spirit is the one who will assure us that God loves us and has adopted us. In Christ, we're divorced from death and married to righteousness, which is that we come to know and to desire and to do the will of God. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about. That's also what Philippians 2 talks about. That in order to fulfill God's purpose, we have to let him fully fill us with his presence, with his spirit. Because it's God who works in you to will and to act. It's actually God who will give you discernment of his will, desire for it, and the dynamic power to do it. So the law was good because it made sin visible to us, but it didn't make righteousness available to us except that Christ achieved that righteousness. Now Paul elaborates this in the middle section of the scripture. I'll let you read that on your own. But suffice it to say that this notion is the summary point. Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin that brought death. But that which is good made sin visible And in order for sin to be completely and utterly dealt with, it had to go to its uttermost point. It's sort of like a weed. Um, I remember when I was gardening with my parents when I was young, and I would see a very small weed that you weren't going to be able to pull out. And my father would say, don't pull that weed yet, because if you try and pull it out now, you're not going to get all of it. But let it grow up a little bit longer. And then in a few days, when you pull that weed, you can pull it out by its roots, That's something of what the law was achieving. It was allowing sin to go to its more uttermost extent so that it could be utterly removed, utterly answered, utterly dealt with. Paul talks about, in Galatians 3, this idea that if we belong to God, then we recognize that the law was a tutor that trained us, but in Christ we come to the fulfillment of that training. We are now ready to receive the inheritance that God has promised. So let me come to my concluding points in the last five minutes here. It's all well and good to say the law made sin visible and Jesus made righteousness attainable. But if I trust in Jesus and I know that there is forgiveness for my sin and I know that there is the spirit living within, why do I still have to struggle with desires or with attitudes with behaviors or ways of thinking that are not of God. Not just things that I want that God doesn't want from me, but my resistance to things that God wants from me that I don't want. Not just things like uh, enticement or physical desire, but also emotional attitudes. Why am I afraid to be honest? Why am I scared by vulnerability? Why do I seem to be prone to depression? Or why is it that I am so easily angered? Why is it that, that when I try and follow God, it seems like things go wrong? Why is it that if God wants me to do the right thing, I keep having the wrong things put in my path? There's any number of why questions that we might ask. Some of these that I've just stated might relate to you. Some others, maybe they don't. But I trust that you also have in within yourself a feeling of a struggle. And Paul talks about this, that I recognize the wisdom of God and the law of God, but I see a different law at work in my body. Now, I believe that Paul is speaking from a personal perspective here. Sometimes it's suggested that what Paul is saying is purely rhetorical, that he's talking about a past experience. I think that's very problematic to read it that way. First of all, I don't think the context um, recommends that. But secondly, More importantly, I don't think that's an accurate description of the life that you and I experience. If people are saying, I used to struggle, but I don't struggle anymore, I'm dubious about that. Because I don't know anybody that's honest who doesn't struggle. So if you don't think that you struggle, I think you're either not being honest with me, or you're not being honest with yourself. And that's a problem, because that becomes a cover. And like I said, that can be the worst Of all, Someone who thinks they're right, but inside there's all kinds of wrong. And I don't believe that Jesus calls us to that kind of an attitude. In fact, what Jesus continually calls us to is to look within. The attitude that says, I'm right, but I'm going to look for where you're wrong, is almost always a cover for this kind of inner problem. And what Jesus says is, instead of being so focused on how others are wrong, look within yourself. Turn your focus inside. Now, why don't we want to do that? Because we are afraid of what we'll find. And we're afraid that God might want to do something about it that could be painful. And we would rather go for what's comfortable. So we are enslaved to the pleasure and enslaved to the fear of pain. And in doing that, we further ourselves away from the will of God. But what Jesus says is you don't have to be afraid because there is no condemnation in Christ, but there is correction. Now Paul describes therefore an experience that you and I can have. I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. That's night guy. Night guy knows I should go to bed now so that I can be ready to do the work that pays the bills that enables night guy to enjoy the night. In fact, Jerry Seinfeld's routine was the only thing that morning guy can do is oversleep, lose his job, and then there's no money for night guy to go out. Well, that would be the law. The penalty comes to provide some remedy. But the real remedy would be if night guy would realize that morning guy is who he is. Now, we live in the night and things are dark around us and we can't see. But there is light that has come into the world and wants to come into you. And it's that light by which we can see. And that light calls us to think of the morning, of the dawn that is coming, and to start to make decisions now that reflect the reality then. So that we won't have to regret what we did in the night. When the light of day finally shines. But if there is a war within us, let the light of the Lord shine on it. Stop hiding your struggle. Because you are not the only one struggling. We are all struggling. But the struggle is good. Because if you know that the victory is already won in Christ, then the struggle is merely a symptom that is being dealt with in this process by which your salvation is being worked out with fear and trembling. Now that sounds neither pleasurable nor free of pain. And in many ways, it isn't. But we're no longer enslaved to those demands. We can desire something else. We can desire the goodness of God. We can find, I'm going to skip past these remarks here, we can find the will of the Father and serve it. If I am going to serve the law of God with my mind, which in those slides that I just skipped over, what Paul is talking about there is not just the intellectual process of the brain, but what he's talking about is the spiritual existence of our being. If in my spiritual being I am enslaved to God, That is the way in which God's reality and righteousness will be born out in me. But you need to recognize that in your body, which is not just your physical being, but which is your carnal nature, there is still the remnant, the root of sin. Now, it may be growing up a little bit. And that doesn't mean that you and I should grow along with it. It means that we should ask the Lord to come weed it out of us. But some things God is going to say, we will deal with that in time. And other things, God is going to say, we're going to deal with that now. And what you and I have to trust is him. The wisdom of his mind, the sureness of his hand. Now, in our spirit, we can trust that. But in our flesh, it's hard. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But do you know when he said that? He said it when his flesh was about to be crucified. He said it on his last night. He said it at his worst moment, his darkest moment, if you will, which was his best moment, the brightest light, because it was the very moment in which he was going to give himself over to the will of the Father. He said to the disciples, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. That's the word of Jesus to you and to me. Maybe you say, Well, but I still have temptations. Keep praying against them. Well, sometimes I fail in them. Okay, then repent. Confess it and renew your commitment not to live that way. Don't be destroyed by it. Your failure, my failure has already been paid for. God already knows about it. God loves you anyway and God can cover it. But don't you cover it because you can't cover it. So uncover it and let God heal it. But keep on praying for righteousness. Pray that you would want what God wants for you. Pray that you would want to read the word. Pray that you would want to pray. Pray that you would want to gather together with others. Pray that you would live in a way that others could see Christ at work in you. Pray that you would be so bold in him that you would be willing to share how you fail with others so that they would know that failure isn't the end. And that you don't have to be perfect to be in Christ because Christ's perfection is more than enough for you. Pray for God's will to be done and for his kingdom to be done, for his kingdom to come in you. That's what Jesus prayed. Three times that night, he prayed, if there is some way that this cup that you want me to drink, a cup of pain and a cup of of death, which is the cup of sacrifice that Jesus had to do. If there's a way for it to pass from me, please let it pass. But if not, if this is your will, if this is the center of your will, if this is the bulls I target, if this is what will release the inheritance to my brothers and sisters, your will be done. And it was, it was the point, it was the release And it was done. It is finished. Can you bring up the last slide for me, guys? Because my mind isn't bringing it. Ultimately, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid the price. Jesus solved the problem. Jesus saved our souls. So now, even when we fail, We are still more than conquerors through him who loved us. But he did not love and save us so that we would fail, but so that we would be transformed. Over the next three weeks, we are going to study Romans chapter 8. It's a little mini-series within this series, because right in the center of this letter comes what I think is perhaps among the most glorious dissertations ever given to humanity of God's will, of God's love, of God's purpose. And it is all embodied in Christ. It's that time where you and I need to come before Him in prayer. Where we need to receive from Him what He has offered to us, which is forgiveness and covenant and life. But you cannot receive from him while you're holding on to something else. It's time to let go and let God take hold of you again or maybe for the first time. Lord, we confess that we are people who struggle with desires and fears that do not reflect you. But we today, Lord, confess that we want your will. More than anything, we want you. We're hungry for you. Lord, free us from our fleshly nature and fill us with your spirit and truth clothe us and cleanse us by your blood and with your light. And take us, Lord, to the very heart of your will and purpose. I pray, Father, that people would feel chains come off of them today, of habits and addictions, of uh, perversions and confusions, freedom from wrong relationships, and the restructuring and renewal of right ones. I pray that people would experience freedom from greed and from depression, from lust and from anger, from confusion and despair, from shame and guilt, that there would be also freedom from legalism and the strictness of trying to achieve what only you could achieve, Lord God. I pray that you would liberate us today from pride and that you would fill us today, Lord, with humility that you would liberate us from fear and fill us today with courage, that you would divorce us from death and let us experience that divorce, Lord. Let us know that even if our bodies are still dying, our souls have been made alive in you and our bodies will be resurrected by you so we are not afraid of death and we are not separated from you because we receive you, Jesus Christ, as our Lord, as our Savior, as our friend. Just make your own prayer to him right now. And let him speak to your heart. He loves you. He forgives you. He calls you into a new and living way. He fills you with his Holy Spirit. And in his spirit and in his name, I bless you with all the riches and all the blessings of the Father's will. Amen and amen.